The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me this morning as we read Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, you could have given us a million years. All our best minds, all our best efforts, all our purest desires, and we would have never found you. We have never found you, and we certainly would have never been reconciled to you. And yet, Father, we know according to the testimony of your word that not only could we have never found you, but that we would have never even had a desire to know you apart from your magnificent work. And so we stand today, Father God, in absolute awe. And all the fact that you would create us that you would desire us. And then in spite of our rebellion and our evil and our rejection of your rule, you would call us. Having sent your son Jesus Christ to take our place, trading our sin for his righteousness, Father, that you would call us to yourself, that you would awaken us to the beauty of Christ, that he would look truly magnificent to our eyes, that we would run to him, and that we would be saved. Father, it's all of you. Salvation is wholly and completely of you. So we celebrate that today. We thank you for that today. And as we open your word and seek to see you more fully, to understand this hope that we have in Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that you would do what only you can do. That you would continue to soften our hearts. You would continue to touch our eyes and that we would be changed by what we see here. Father, we trust that you will. For we pray it in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, dear children, we have much to cover and very little time, so I ask you to return to your feet, please. We return to Mark's gospel. We have now made it to the 15th chapter. We begin in the first verse there. This is the word of God. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate, was amazed. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Again, Father, a brief cry for hope, a plea for help. Help us to see, help us to understand, and help us to believe. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So perhaps the most fundamental rule to rightly handling and reading and understanding and interpreting scripture or most any other form of literature for that matter is that we must do absolutely everything in our power to rightly understand what the writer meant to say. Now sadly, 
this goal has been all but abandoned in many common, theologically liberal churches and seminaries all across this country. For many professing believers, the most important thing about the Bible is not what does the word actually say, but what do I hear it say? What do these words mean to me? How do they make me feel? How do these words fit in with my own personal worldview? The author's original intent, what he actually meant by the words he said, these things are of very little consequence. They may be points of interest to professional, professional theologians or really brainy type Christian folks, but for the day-to-day men and women trying to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are very little consequence. Now, you don't have to be overtly evil and you don't have to outright reject the name of God in order to fall into this trap. I know many well-meaning people that will proudly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and yet have fallen to this place right here. But dear friends, you must see how dangerous this trap really is. This kind of careless, man-centered hermeneutic, where it will lead our hearts, where it will lead entire congregations of people. What we'll find is churches filled with well-meaning people, well-meaning people who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, yet completely malnourished and utterly spiritually anemic. Now these people, they may love the physical substance of the word of God, They may be able to recite Bible verses way better than any of us. They may be able to to study and to present what the word has said. They may have devoted their lives to, to reading and memorizing and even teaching the words that are written here on these pages, but they have no real understanding as to what the text actually means. So as a result of this, we have churches full of people that have no idea who God really is. They sing passionate songs to a lifeless God that does not exist. They devote their lives to following after a simple, easy to understand God that does not confront them in their sensibilities, a God who they have crafted according to their own wishes, a God who has been made in their own image. Unbeknownst to them, their religion is an offense against God. And beyond this, what they find at the end of this life is that they have no hope. They have no joy. They have no assurance. They have no real forgiveness because they have not based their lives upon the plain and clear and true teaching of God's word. They base it upon their own ideas of who they think God might be. Dear friends, you must understand it is an act of undeserved love, unmitigated grace that God of the universe has chosen to reveal not only himself, but his plan for his creation to us. We would have never found him. You give me all the days and all the greatest explorers, we would have never found God. And yet he chose to speak to us through the lives, through the personalities, through the words of prophets and priests and kings and apostles. Dear friends, God desires to be known. He desires to be truly and rightly known by his people. The whole purpose in this is that he might be glorified that those who he reveals himself to, those that come to rightly see him in his word, that we might then magnify, that we might reflect, that we might celebrate the absolute magnificence and beauty and glory of God to the watching world. And because this is God's ultimate purpose, because this is the end for which he has created the world, as those that have been made in his image, as those that have been called to reflect his glory to the world, that's the only place we're gonna find true satisfaction. Dear friends, that's the only place you're gonna find true and lasting joy as you fulfill the purpose for which you have been made to make the glory of God known to the nations and you cannot know this glory. You cannot know this God if you do not rightly handle his word. If you do not do the hard work of wrestling to see what these authors really meant for you to know. Not just memorizing the words on a page, allowing them to penetrate your heart. That is the only place that you will find true joy, true peace and it is there that is the more you see him the more you know him, the more you recognize the God of the universe, you will find yourself to be truly blessed and happy. So because of this, dear friends, we would be absolute fools, supreme fools to neglect this gift that God has given us in his word. Simply because the task requires much effort, much humility, much labor in order to see what these words really mean. So we must dedicate ourselves to that work. Again, I say to the work, to the labor, to the striving, because we will never arrive. When we began our study verse by verse through Mark's gospel, all the way back in December of 2019, we took some time back then to try to understand who is John Mark? Why has God called and used this man to record these words? What is the context in which he wrote? If I'm being completely transparent, as I look backwards and I read through those old manuscripts, I'm a bit mortified. As I look back at at the words that I wrote and the words that I preached to you, they were truth as best I could understand truth on that day. 
But dear friends, I look back and I just shake my head as I realize how little I knew of the scripture. How little I knew about preaching. How little I knew about this gospel. How little I knew about God. But I suppose it's always going to be like this. Dear friends, we never arrive. We never get to the point where we say, well, I'm glad I've got God figured out. Let me move on to something greater now. We will always, under the working of the Spirit, under the power of his word, if we will humbly submit to doing the work that God has called us to do, we will always be looking back, if we're honest, and going, who was that man and what was I talking about? God is so much greater. He is so much bigger. There is so much more joy and hope and commitment and and love and assurance found in this word than I ever could have imagined. And so I do hope that despite my frailty, despite all of our weakness, that God has worked through these last two years as we have walked through this text, that God has worked, that he has been faithful to bring you to a clear understanding of who he is, of what this gospel means, and how we're intended to respond to this. You remember that the very first verse in Mark's gospel, it began like this, as he said that this was the beginning. This was but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then as Mark moved on, and rather quickly he moved through the earthly ministry of this man called John the Baptist, Then he brings us to the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. As he then comes out and he proclaims this gospel, he says that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, we must repent and believe in the gospel. Dear friends, we recognize that the purpose for this writing, the purpose for what John Mark is doing here is very similar to what the apostle John intended in his. That a believing people may come to read these words. That under the power of the spirit, we may see and know and recognize that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of the most high God that he is the one that has come to usher in the kingdom of God, and it's only in him that we may find eternal life. Dear friends, as we have labored and we have strived, I talked with a dear brother on Wednesday night, and I said, what it feels to me like we are doing. We refuse to be those people that pick up a chicken wing, eat the big stuff, and then throw away a bone still filled with meat. We're gonna pick, we're gonna work, we're gonna labor to get, labor to get every last ounce of goodness out of that bone. We're gonna work to make certain that we get every last bit of what God has revealed himself in his word. And I pray, dear friends, as you have labored in this, you've come to see who Jesus Christ is more clearly than ever before. You must know that your your confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, it is only as good to the degree to which it matches up with who he really is. I pray that over these last two years, you have come to see what it means for Jesus to be the Christ what it means for him to be the son of God and what this kingdom he comes to usher in really means. Now with this purpose in mind, it should be no surprise to us then that the real turning point in this entire gospel was the confession of Peter. It was the point where Peter, speaking on behalf of the other 12, having seen the works and the teaching of Jesus Christ, he came to a right recognition that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the son of the most high God, and that he had in fact come to usher in the kingdom of God. But again, I say, a confession is only as good to the degree to which it matches up with the truth of who God is, and these men had a long, long way to go. So from this point forward, we would see God continually working in their lives, continually touching these men to bring them to a clear understanding, to greater sight as to what he meant by bringing this kingdom. He had to help them to understand that they were headed to Jerusalem, that there in Jerusalem, he would not be sitting upon an earthly throne. He would not be receiving an earthly coronation, that the purpose for his going to Jerusalem would be that he would be arrested and mocked and beaten and tried and killed. But that three days later, he would rise again from the grave. These men, they had to know Now that they recognized Jesus' identity, now that they recognized that he was in fact the Christ, they had to know that he had not come to establish an earthly, political, or military kingdom. Because dear friends, you must know that that was the expectation. Because people in the first century aren't all that different from people in the 21st century today. What they wanted was an immediate ease to suffering. What they wanted was someone that could come and free them from earthly oppressors. What they wanted was someone that could give them earthly provision. What they wanted was someone that could bring them relief from earthly suffering. What these men wanted was a savior that would make certain that they had no chance of suffering anything, any hurt, any pain, any oppression in this life here and now. They looked for a savior made after their own image. They looked for a savior who would be little more than a genie in a bottle. And so Jesus had to realign their hearts. Much like the blind man that was healed in multiple stages, he had to continue to touch their eyes to help them to more accurately see who he was and what he had come to do. To help them understand that he came to offer them so much more than just earthly healing. So much more than even raising a man from the grave that he came to offer them entrance into an eternal kingdom. That he came to offer them peace with God. Now then, just as today, most people are going to reject a message like this. The idea that 
Suffering will not be healed in a moment. The idea that following after this Savior is going to cost them greatly. And yet if these men were going to follow him, if these men were going to truly follow after Jesus Christ to the gates of glory, then they had to understand that immediately after earthly suffering, it would not be taken away. As a matter of fact, they were going to find themselves with a whole new host of enemies. Following after Jesus Christ would come at a great cost, but the promise he offered them was that he would be with them. He would not forsake them. That nothing in this life could separate them from his love. And that even greater than this, no matter what great things this world has to offer, and no matter what they suffer in this world, it will all be but a vapor compared to the beauty and the joy and the glory of spending eternity in Christ with his kingdom. And yet in spite of all this, what we find by the time we reach this morning's text is that King Jesus, the God of the universe, stands alone. These men that he's revealed himself to, these men that he's continually touched to help them rightly understand the kingdom of God and who he is as the king, every single one of them has either fled or betrayed or denied even knowing Christ. This was all just as Jesus had promised, just as God had preordained, just as Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost. As he said these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all as God had decreed. This was all as God had planned. Everything was playing out exactly as Jesus had predicted, that Judas would betray Jesus into the hands of the sinful Jewish leaders, that those sinful men would then hand Jesus over into the hands of the political leaders, namely this man called Pilate, as he reigned on behalf of the Romans. Now, you'll likely recall that Jesus is going to face two trials, two trials, each of them coming in three phases. And we spent our last two Lord's Day together talking about the first two phases of the religious trial. And at the very same time, Peter's denial of Jesus, that he was down in the courtyard while Jesus was up there standing trial for his life, that Peter was there denying having ever known him three times. Now, as to this third phase of the religious trial, Mark only offers these brief statements here. He says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. As you know, this entire trial, it was nothing more than an absolute farce. Not only had the religious leaders already made up their mind as to what the punishment Jesus must face, not only had they made up their mind about his guilt long before even figuring out what they were going to charge him with, they had broken almost every Jewish trial law in the process. Perhaps the most obvious of those was the fact that capital punishment trials, trials in which the person that stood trial might in fact lose his life if he was found guilty, that these trials were not to be held at night. And yet that's exactly what these men had done. Everything that we read from the middle portion of chapter 14 of Mark's gospel all the way through, these, all the way through this morning's text, all of these things, they played out under the darkness of night. These men who claimed to love God's law, these men who had dedicated their lives to defending the law of God, they were so filled with hatred for Jesus Christ. They were so filled with hatred for the Son of God that they knowingly transgressed the law that they had given their life to defend. This was the hypocrisy of these men. And yet, because they did it under the guise of religious activity, because they did it under the name of, Jesus, of, under the name of God, of defending God and of defending his law, they had to keep up this appearance of propriety. And so as soon as the sun came up, this would have been sometime between five and six o'clock in the morning, they gathered together the whole council for one last official trial. Now they had all already condemned Jesus to death. They had all already made up their mind that Jesus had to die, but they were gonna meet one last time. And this was nothing more than just a, a, a nod to proper decorum. This was nothing more than just an official stamp to approve. Yes, we in fact do declare that Jesus Christ must die. Now we don't read much about it here in Mark's gospel. Again, just one sentence. But if you look over at Luke's parallel, Luke uh, chapter 22, what you're going to find there is that they ask him the same kinds of questions. They understand that Jesus is not going to deny his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. And so they ask him the very same questions. And then, just as before, quoting the prophet Daniel, he affirms that, yes, it is as you say, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed One. Yet again, the people feign outrage. They ask, what further thing do we need? What more confession do we need? What more witnesses should we bring in? He has confessed it. This is clear blasphemy. This man must die. So we read in this morning's text, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. There's that word again, delivered, paradidomai. Dear friends, you must not miss this. You must not miss the significance of this. You must know that man, every single man is enslaved. Enslaved to sin and enslaved to death. 
Apart from the work of God, as I said in my prayer earlier, apart from the work of God, we are completely, completely incapable of doing or even wanting to do anything to break free from this slavery. We're completely incapable of doing or even wanting to do anything to know and please God. Dear friends, you must understand that the way God has made man is that he has enabled us to chase after that which our heart wants most. What do you will? What do you will to do? What do you will to dedicate your life to? What do you will to chase after? He says, go after that and go after that hard. But you must know that even your wills are enslaved. Your ability to turn to God, your ability to trust in Christ, your ability to do that which pleases your creator, it is completely encaptured, uh, captured, enraptured, held enslaved to sin and death and Satan. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. We read there that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This was the state of all men apart from Jesus Christ. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Living in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind. By nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. This is the state of natural man. Slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to evil, slaves to death, slaves to the passion of our own flesh. And yet now here we see Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who knew no sin, the one who deserved no slavery, the one who, had never, who should have never tasted death, freely handing himself over, that he would be bound, that he would be manhandled, that he would be abused, that these sinful men could do with him whatever they wished. Now at any moment, Jesus Christ could have called down thousands of angels to set him free. At any moment, with just a word, he could have destroyed these men that were his captives. And yet, captors, and yet instead, as an act of love, as an act of obedience, for the sake of the glory of the Father, he went along like a docile little lamb. He allowed himself to be wrapped up and bound. He allowed himself to be delivered. He allowed himself to be delivered and accused and found guilty so that you and I might walk free, so that you and I might be found innocent, so that you and I might be counted as righteousness. So we read that they delivered him over to Pilate. Church, let me ask you a question. Who was the governor of Texas in 1918? I didn't think anybody know. William Hobby. Who was the governor of Texas in 1932? Ross Sterling. Let's go a little sooner. What about the year I was born? Who was the governor of Texas in 1979? I bet someone knows this one. This is Clements. Let me ask you another question then. Who was the governor of Judea in the year A.D. 30? Pilate. Why? Why do we know these things? Why do we not know who the governors of Texas were? Why are we not able to look back just in the very recent history of our state and tell who the governors were, and yet we can look back at this obscure first century governor in a place that most of us will never go to? Why does every little boy and girl that grew up in the church house, why do we all seem to know that this man called Pilate, that he was the governor, that he was the man reigning over Judea in this time? Why? Was he the greatest? Was he the most powerful? Was he the longest running governor in Roman history? Or perhaps was he the most vicious? Was he the most violent? Was he the most evil man that had ever reigned in the history of the world? Was he even in the top 100? I don't think so. Dear friends, I, I submit to you today that what we know about Pontius Pilate the reason we know this man called Pontius Pilate is because of the common, ordinary, everyday sins in his life. Because this man called Pilate, he feared men. Because this man called Pilate, he desired to hold on to a position of power. That these common sins led him to play a pivotal role in the most vile and wicked and evil act in the history of the world. Dear friends, you must understand this. Pilate is clear proof and an undeniable warning that your sins don't have to be extraordinary in order for you to find yourself in some dark and terrifying places. Don't judge your sins according to some earthly scale. Don't judge your sins by looking at the most wicked men that had ever lived. You must recognize that you will be led into utter darkness. You will do things that you would have sworn you would never do if you do not daily dedicate your life to mortifying the flesh. If you don't determine at every single moment by the power of God's spirit, according to the teaching of his word, I will dedicate my life to finding and fleshing out and destroying every last ounce of sin I find. Dear friends, if you do not, you will find that it consumes you. You'll find that it overtakes your life. You'll find like cancer that it has completely killed you and led you into a place that you would have never imagined. This was the life of Pilate, this man that was being used in the darkest of ways 
following after the will of his heart, following after his true desires, that he was party, a major party, to the greatest crime that was ever committed, the murder of God's own son. So who was Pilate and how did he end up here? Now most of you know that in the time when Jesus was born that the client king of Rome that ruled over Israel and most of the surrounding areas was a man that we've come to we've come to call Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great, he called himself the king of the Jews, despite the fact that his father was an Edomite and that he had not descended from the line of Jacob, and yet he declared himself to be king of the Jews, and some people perhaps responded to him as such. And he had done some great things. He had refurbished and expanded the temple complex. But we also know that he had done some incredibly wicked things. We know that when some wise men came, we think about this this time of the year, when some wise men came and they asked about the true king of the Jews, the one, the baby that had been born in Bethlehem, that he was so filled with rage and fear that he had thousands of babies murdered, seeking to destroy this one that was the true king of the, king of the Jews, this one that had been proclaimed from days of old. But we know that Herod, as his death drew, new, drew, drew near, that he changed his will under the approval of Caesar Tiberius, he, he changed his will. And what he determined was that upon his death, that three of his sons were to take control of this area that he once ruled over as king. Herod Antipas, one of his sons, he was going to be the tetrarch or the, or the governor of the area of Galilee and of Perea. One of his other sons, a man called Philip, he was going to take control of everything to the north and to the east of the Jordan River. His other son, Herod Archelaus, that he was going to take control of the southern region, this region of Judea and Samaria and Idumea. Now, the other two brothers, Philip and Antipas, they were able to hold things together pretty well. They were able to rule their regions for almost three decades apiece. But this other brother, Archelaus, his, his leadership was a bit of a mess because of his violence, because of the way he mistreated the Jewish people. They complained to Rome. And eventually, Tiberius decided this guy's got to be removed. And so he took, he took this son of Herod the Great out of the way. And he said, you know what? I'm going to rule this place by direct Roman rule. I'm going to put, I'm going to put a governor I'm going to put a legate. I'm going to put a, a, a prefect in place, one who directly represents Rome to rule over this important place called Judea, including Jerusalem, where the temple stands. So the fifth of those governors was a man called Pilate. Now Luke confirms all of this. You want to read it in Scripture? You go back to the third chapter of Luke's gospel, and you can read about all of this, how all of this happened in the time of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests of Jerusalem. Now, as I said earlier, Pilate was not the most vicious. He was not the most, most cruel. He was not the most violent man that had ever ruled. And yet you must know that he was in fact wicked. He was in fact violent. He had no love loss for the Jewish people. He had no real concern for their practices, their ordinances, their laws, their worship. In fact, historians tell us that at one point, Pilate went in and he raided the temple treasury in order to build for himself some aqueducts. We know in addition to this that on another occasion, he had some Roman soldiers lead in banners into the city of Jerusalem, that at the top of these banners, at the end of these flagpoles, that there was this, this golden bust this picture, this image of Caesar. Now we know that Caesar, he represented himself and many of the people, they treated him as God. And so certainly this was an offense to the Jewish people that they would lead in this image of a false God into their holy city. And so there was an uprising and they called to Rome and they said, this won't stand. We won't allow this any longer. And so Caesar sent sent word to Pilate and said, you must remove this. Pilate lost. Pilate went head to head with the Jewish people and yet he lost. He had to take down these standards because the people were so so angry with him. And so what we see is that there's a very delicate relationship. There's a very delicate nature to Pilate's position, that, that his relationship with the Jewish people, it was quite complex. You see, he had to rule with just a firm enough hand to make certain that the people didn't revolt. But at the same time, he couldn't crush them so much that they squealed and became a nuisance to Rome. And so we see that this would often boil over into some true violence. We read in, the, in Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel, just about one incident that it's not recorded for us by any other historians, and yet we read these words. Luke 13, verse 1. There were, some, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now again, I say this wasn't recorded for us by any other historians. It's just a brief word, just this. And yet it seems to me this is something that must have happened very recently. It can't have happened long before we read this text because otherwise these men wouldn't have had to come and tell Jesus about this event that happened. But it seems perhaps that what's happened is some Galilean men had come in a desire to worship God. They'd come into the temple complex that there they were going to offer their sacrifices. But for some reason, they were a threat to Pilate. Whether he thought they were rabble rousers or zealots or whatever it was, he thought they were a threat. And so he comes in and he slits their throat. He kills them right there near the altar so that their blood runs down and mixes with the blood of the animals, the sacrifices. This shows you the lack of love loss. 
This shows you the disrespect and the dishonor that Pilate had with regards to the Jewish people, their customs, their sacrifices, even their temple. So this is Pilate. He, now the governor would have typically lived a little bit further north. Typically the, the governor, he would have lived in a place called uh, Caesarea Maritima. This was a place up in the north, right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a beautiful place. I don't blame a governor for wanting to live there. You can go there today. What you'll find is there's a magnificent palace there. It includes, a, it includes an indoor pool. In addition to that, there's a giant horse track there. There's a ginormous amphitheater, the aqueducts that I talked about earlier. All of those things were there. It was truly a beautiful place. But whenever there was going to be a great feast, whenever the people were going to be all gathered together in one place, the governor had to leave and come to Jerusalem. He had to make certain that he kept his thumb on things. He had to make certain he was there. So Pilate, along with some of his soldiers, they would have come south, they would have come into Jerusalem, and they would have made sure that nothing was going to spark off. In addition to this, when he stayed there, he would stay just off the northwest corner of the temple complex. There's a place there called Antonia Fortress. We saw this when we went to Jerusalem not long ago. There's this fortress there just off the northeast corner of, of the temple complex. And from this high position, Pilate could have overlooked the temple and made sure that everything was peaceful, made sure that he didn't need to step in and intervene. So John tells us that Jesus was led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's called the Praetorium, early in the morning. Now, appointments before Pilate, they were first come, first serve. So the Jewish people, they would need to rush Jesus into this official religious trial, and then they need to get him before Pilate, before other people got on the docket before them. And so they rush to Pilate's headquarters. They rush into his, into his headquarters and they want to present Jesus to be heard so that their trial can be heard. Now, unlike in America where we have this separation of powers, that wasn't the case according to, Ro to Roman government. The way things played out then was it was not uncommon for Pilate, for the governor, for him to not only be the chief executor or the chief executive, but to be the supreme judge in the land under Caesar. So they would have had to come before this man and present their case be first on his docket and so we read in John 18 verse 29 that the governor goes out to the people and he asks what accusation do you bring against this man okay guys what's the charge what's the accusation what charge do you bring against this man that you bring into my courts now we aren't given any indication that Pilate knew anything about Jesus before this moment but if Caiaphas, Caiaphas had been able to secure for himself a Roman cohort, then we have to think that surely he had some conversations with Pilate or one of his minions about getting these soldiers to go out and arrest Jesus. In addition to this, we have to imagine that Pilate was aware of the fact that this man had come into the temple complex and completely chased everyone out. He had to have known about the crowds that were following Jesus and I have to imagine that he laughed to himself whenever he found out that these religious snobs were put in their place by this nobody from Galilee. But even if he was completely ignorant of all those things, Jesus' entrance on Sunday, his entrance into the holy city as he rode in on the colt of a donkey, his triumphal entry as people shouted out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings in the kingdom of David. Surely that had to have caught his attention. And if this man really was there to overthrow the Romans, this could mean big, big trouble. So he was going to hear this case. But we cannot say with any level of certainty what, if anything, Pilate knew or believed about Jesus. So he calls the Sanhedrin and he says, here, present your charge. And what is their, what is their response? Again, in John's gospel, John 18, 30, they say to him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not deliver him over to you. This is classic. Do you understand what they're saying here? Pilate says, okay, what is this man guilty of? You're bringing him before me and you're asking for me to kill him. You're asking for him to be executed. What then is the charge? What then are you telling me to convict this man of? And they said, Pilate, Pilate, Pilate. Look, we don't want to bother you. If this man hadn't been doing anything evil, we wouldn't be bringing him here. Give us some credit here, man. We're the religious people. We're the keepers of the law. If this man wasn't guilty, if this man wasn't evil, if this man wasn't wicked, we wouldn't be wasting your time this morning by bringing him here. This is how weak the Sanhedrin's case was. Not only did they not want to have to argue the facts, not only did they not want to have to present witnesses, they didn't even want to bring the charge. They didn't even want to have to tell Pilate what the man was guilty of. They just wanted Pilate to be their hatchet man. They just wanted him to take their word for it. Look, Pilate, we're not really here to debate the facts. We've already decided the man's guilty. We're not here to retry the case. Just kill the man. Just execute him. But Pilate wasn't going to go along. He wasn't going to do their dirty work, especially not with these religious leaders. There was no love lost between them. He wasn't going to do their dirty work. And so again, he says to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Essentially, if you want to kill this man, go do it yourself. Don't come to me and ask me to do your dirty work. Now, of course, we know that Jewish law, it did make room for execution. It did make room for capital punishment. We saw this as soon as Noah and his family comes off the ark after the flood. 
we see that so precious is the life of man. That so precious is the life of he who has been made in the image of God, the imago Dei. He who has been made in the image of God, specifically because we are made in the image of God. That anyone that takes the life of another man unjustly, that by the hand of man, that man must die. We read it clearly, Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Dear you want to know why life is precious? And you want to know why the world has no right to speak about morality with regards to how we treat mankind? Because they don't believe in the Imago Dei. They don't believe that we are made in the image of God. They don't recognize God at all. Only we have the moral high ground. Only we have the basis. Only we have the justification to stand up and say, life matters. Because we know that man has been made in the image of God. So these men had a right to take the life of one if he had in fact committed murder. But if we have the right to take the life of someone for killing one made in the image of God, how much more do we have the right to take the life of somebody who attacks the very God in whose image we're made? And so, The accusation of blasphemy, to utter words of curse against the God in whose image we're made, that itself was a capital punishment. We read this in Leviticus 24. Anyone who curses the name of God is to be taken outside of the camp and stoned to death. But despite this fact, despite the fact that Jewish law made room for executions, despite the fact that Pilate essentially gave them permission right here, they weren't going to do it. So they say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Again, obviously, the Jewish leaders, they did not want Jesus' blood on their hands. They did not want to be the ones to take his life. This would seem to be at least in part because of the fear, the obvious fear that they had for the crowds. This was the same fear that drove these men to commit themselves that they would not arrest Jesus during Holy Week. And yet, here we are, doing the exact thing they didn't want to do. And yet, they're refusing. They're pushing back on Pilate. They're saying, no, Pilate, you must be the one to execute him. Dear friends, I pray you know by now. As powerful as fear is, as powerful as sin is, as sincere as the will of these men were to have Pilate be the one to execute Jesus, I pray by now you recognize that there was something far greater, something far more powerful steering every last one of these events. I pray that you recognize that God of the universe had orchestrated, he had ordained, he had predestined, he was moving all creation to make sure that Jesus Christ would die exactly like this. That's why we read in John's Gospel, 1832, that all of this, their refusal to execute Jesus, their demand that the Romans be the one to do it, that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If the the Jewish people had executed Jesus, it would have been by stoning. It would not have been by lifting him high. And yet Jesus had said, just as God had decreed, just as Jesus had said to the Pharisee called Nicodemus back in John 3, 14, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This was the way. This was the way that God had predestined. This is the way that God had ordered and orchestrated and moved all history to take the life of his son, that he, like the serpent in the wilderness, lifted up on a stake, that his son would be lifted up before man, that all those that look upon him, that they might be saved. And so while the Sanhedrin, they truly desired, driven by fear, they truly desired to make certain that it was the Romans that took the life of Jesus Christ, they were only serving the purposes of God. They were only doing that which he had predestined to take place. Dear friends, there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing which takes place outside of the hand and plan of the God of the universe, not even the most sinful and wicked acts of men. Now, Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin did eventually present some charges before Pilate. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, we know that these first two accusations are outright lies. Jesus was not misleading the nation. He was not trying to snatch his people away from the hands of the Romans. He'd come to win the hearts and minds. He'd come to present a gospel. He'd come to call men to repent and believe in him and to be saved, but he was not leading a rebellion. He was not trying to wrestle control of Israel away from the hands of anyone. As for forbidding the people from paying tribute to Caesar, he had been asked explicitly about this. You remember the Pharisees came to him and asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Just days before this, they had asked this question. They were trying to trap Jesus by his own words, and his answer was magnificent. Do you remember what he did? He called to someone to give him a coin. I'm imagining someone in the, someone in the crowd. They flip Jesus a coin, and he grabs it, and he, 
he flips it over and he shows it to him and he says, the picture, the image, the face on this coin, whose is it? And the people rightly responded, well, that's Caesar. And he says, yes. And if Caesar loves this coin so much to put his face on it, give it back to him. Render to God, to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. This coin belongs to Caesar. It's imprinted with his image. But you're imprinted with the image of God and you must give yourself to God. Give Caesar the trinkets. Give him the gold. Give him the coins. Give him the taxes. But you must give your entire life and all that you have and all of your hopes. You must give that to God. Jesus hadn't broken these rules. He wasn't here to try to wrestle a land away from people. He wasn't here to amass some kind of a fortune. He wasn't here to steal the taxes. But what about this third charge? What about this third charge? We know that the religious establishment, they never let truth get in the way of their story. The ends justified the means. They were going to do whatever they had to do to reach the appointed place, to make certain that Jesus Christ was killed. But what about this third charge? He calls himself Christ, a king. Perhaps that's the issue that would stick. Now, as I've told you, Pilate's in an extremely precarious situation here. If he angers these people too much, they're going to squeal to Rome and he's going to be removed or worse. But at the same time, he can't allow some kind of an uprising. If this man really is calling himself the king of the Jews, if he, if he really is threatening to gather the people together and to rebel against Rome, he must squash this now. So he's going to hear this question. Is he the Christ? Is he the king of the Jews? So back to Mark's gospel, verse 2. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is the first time we've seen this phrase used in Mark's gospel, the king of the Jews. You'll remember that because of Jesus' teaching, because of his healing, because of his miracles, people began to ask themselves, is this the anointed one? Is he Messiah? Is Jesus the Christ? And you'll recall that Jesus wouldn't use these terms himself. As a matter of fact, his favorite self-designation, he would use the title given through the prophet Daniel. He would call himself the son of man because he knew that this was a much less politically charged term. This wasn't a term that carried with it all the history and all the, uh, all the military fervor that the Christ or Messiah would have carried with it. He wanted people to stop thinking about earthly rebellion and start thinking about an eternity with God. He wanted people to stop thinking about all the evil that the Romans were doing and start examining their heart and finding the sin that was there. And so in order to realign their hearts, in order to bring them back to that which really matters, whenever people would call him the Christ, whenever people would come to recognize that he was Messiah, he would call them to silence because they couldn't fully recognize what that meant. They weren't yet ready to understand who Christ was and what he had come to do. But these phrases, the son of man, the anointed one, Messiah, Christ, they didn't mean anything to Pilate. They weren't loaded with any kind of patriotic fervor. They didn't have years of, of faulty theology behind them. He didn't, have any, he didn't have any memories of his parents promising him about this eternal king that would come from the line of David. These were Jewish issues. They were Jew, Jewish titles. And so Pilate simply looks at Jesus and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And I have to imagine he did it with a mocking tone. Are you the king of the Jews? You. The man is standing bound before me. The man has been completely abandoned. The man that wouldn't even allow his servant to take up a sword. You are the king of the Jews? You're the one that these people are so afraid of? You're the one that... People were singing praises to as you rode into town? You're the one that these people have waited hundreds of years for? You? You're the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Now in English, that, that's a bit of a, a weird translation. You have said so. In Greek, it's just two words, si leges. If you look at the NASB or the, the King James translations, you'll find it. It is as you say. This is an affirmation. It is as you say. You say correctly, Pilate. You don't know how correctly you say, Pilate. You say that I am king of the Jews and you are correct. It is as you say. Now if we turn to John's gospel, again, we get a bit more dialogue there. John 18, 34, when Pilate presents the charge, Jesus asks him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate understood. Pilate knew what was up. If Jesus really was the king of the Jews, his people would not be delivering him. His people would not be handing, handing him over like this. They would be rallying behind him. They'd be taking up swords and fighting. Look, even if they couldn't overthrow the Roman army, although I bet they could, because their full army was not in that town. There was millions of Jewish people. Had they all taken up swords, I think they would have won. 
But even if they couldn't overthrow the Romans that were there, they certainly could have stopped the religious leaders from dragging away their king. They would have rallied behind him and taking up arms. That's what they did under the Maccabees and the Seleucid Revolt when they revolted just 200 years earlier and they took back Jerusalem for themselves. Surely they could have and they would have done that. So Pilate's asking him, Jesus, if you're really the king of the Jews, why are they handing you over? What have you done to alienate yourself? What have you done to separate yourself from your people? What sin have you committed that they are so angry, they are so furious, they have so abandoned your kingship that they now hand you over to me? Verse 36, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. This is the truth. Pilate was not far off. He wasn't all that mistaken. Had Jesus been an earthly king, had he come to establish an earthly kingdom, his servants would have risen up and fought. They would have taken up their swords. That's what Peter sought to do, wasn't it? They would have gladly taken up their swords, even willing to lay down their lives and die in defense of Jesus, their king. And yet they did not. Jesus, in fact, would not allow them because Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. Jesus' kingdom was a spiritual, an eternal, a heavenly kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has been preaching all along. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Earthly kingdoms come by force. Earthly kingdoms come by might and by sword. The arrival of an earthly kingdom, it's a big deal and everybody knows about it. Access into these kingdoms, it comes by natural birth or by bloodlines or perhaps just by outright purchasing it, by bribing someone in order to give you access. And then once these kingdoms are established, they're always defended by even more violence. But this wasn't the case with the kingdom of God. This kingdom went unnoticed, hidden and unnoticed by almost everyone. There was no force, there was no physical conflict, there was no political maneuvering. Most of the world wouldn't even know that it was happening. It's like some yeast hidden in a lump of dough, or perhaps like a mustard seed. He compares it to a seed that's being sown in a field. He says, that's what I've come to do. I've not come to start a war. I've not come to start a rebellion. I've come to sow seeds, so sue me. I've come to plant seeds of the gospel. I've come to see what kind of soil you people have. Will your hearts receive this gospel that I preach? That's the way that my kingdom comes. That's the way that I win citizens into my kingdom, by sowing a seed, by preaching a message, by charging men to examine their own hearts. That access to this kingdom, it isn't granted to entire people groups. It doesn't come through bribery. It doesn't come through natural birth. That you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit because you can't even see this kingdom. It's gonna look like nothing. It's not gonna look powerful. It's not gonna look great. It's not gonna look attractive unless you're born again. And it's only then through being born again that you may see and enter into this kingdom of God. As you turn in repentant faith, as you abandon the desires of the flesh, as you seek to bow down and obey this one called king who looks nothing like royalty in these moments, this king who does not fight to preserve himself, this king that does not fight to be found innocent, this king that lays down his life for the sake of his citizens, that's the kingdom that I come to bring. That's the kingdom that will last. I don't come to fight over your trinkets. I'm not fighting over your money. I'm not fighting over your land. I've come to reign in the hearts and lives of my people. And I do it by preaching a message. I do it by standing before you. And I do it by dying. Now I have to imagine at this point, Pilate goes, well, good, then you're no threat. Because I don't care about all that. The hearts of men? Eternity with God? I just want to make sure I wasn't going to lose my job here, bud. So you're telling me I'm cool? Church, this is the irony of the whole thing. This is the true irony of the whole thing. Had Jesus come and done the exact same works that he did, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead, had Jesus come doing these exact same miracles and using them to rally and recruit an army? that these men might then go out and fight the Romans, establish a powerful earthly kingdom in Israel, a kingdom like under David or even Solomon, then these Jewish leaders, most of them, would not have been willing to hand him over like this. You must understand that had the kingdom of Christ simply been the supernatural empowerment for the Jewish people to keep pursuing all the things that they and the rest of the world want. If the kingdom of God was nothing more than a religious path to fleshly goods, everyone would receive it. These people would not have handed Jesus Christ over if he had come to satisfy their flesh. If he had come to meet their earthly needs, 
If he had come to relieve them of any temporal and immediate suffering under the hands of the Romans, they wouldn't have dared handed him over. And we see this in real time. We see this again in John's Gospel, chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000. The people recognize, oh, this guy's got bread. This guy can feed us. And so they chase him all the way around the Sea of Galilee. They seek by force to make him their king. Jesus is going to take this opportunity to show them exactly what kind of kingdom he comes to bring. He's going to take this opportunity to show them, I didn't just come to bring you a free lunch. So he says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus was telling the Jewish people, stop settling for so little. Stop settling for earthly trinkets. Stop giving your life. Stop devoting your life to chasing after sensual pleasures. Stop fighting over worldly kingdoms that are all going to burn up in the end anyway. Come to me. Give your life to pursuing that which is best. Give your life to coming to me. Trust in me and you'll be truly satisfied. And you know the thought process then. Okay, good. So we come to you and you've got some different treasure? You've got some better tasting bread? You've got some bread that doesn't go moldy? Moldy? He says, no, no, no. I'm offering you myself. I've come to give you myself. I'm the only thing that's going to satisfy you. God has made you in such a way that you will never be satisfied with anything but me. You must understand that my father created bread to give you a taste of me. When you taste the sweetness, when your belly is filled for a moment, perhaps for a day, and then tomorrow you're hungry, that's meant to remind you, oh yeah, bread won't satisfy. Earthly things won't satisfy. The best day on earth won't satisfy. I must be made for something more. He says, now here I am. I'm the bread which truly satisfies. Come to me and you'll never go hungry. You will never thirst. You will never lack. You will never be let down. You will never be dissatisfied. I am your hope. I am your treasure. I am everything that you're created to enjoy. Now come to me. But unless God draws you, again I say, unless he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, you will always reject this message. So we read that the Jewish people, they were offended. Many of them grumbled, in fact. But Jesus would not soften his message. He loved these people too much. He loved these people too much to allow them to go on believing that they could have him and his kingdom and continue pursuing after the things of this world. He loved them too much to allow them to continue believing that he was just a means to some other ends. And so he doubles down. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, this is the only life. This is the only enduring life. This is the only eternal life. This is the only thing that will truly satisfy you. It is me. It's not some other thing that I'm just ushering in. It's me. And this life, this flesh, all that I am, I give it now on your behalf. I lay it down to be accused and beaten and bound and killed that you may live. Now come to me. Be joined just as closely to me as the bread that you eat and take inside of yourself. Because to look at me, to handle me, to think about me, to watch as other people enjoy me, that's going to do you no good. I must abide in you. That's your only hope. And instead, what do we read? At this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Church, this is spiritual blindness. This is bondage to sin. This is spiritual death. This is the state of natural man. Jesus Christ comes offering more than you could ever imagine, more than you have ever tasted, more than you ever even knew you wanted. And we say, yeah, well, just give us bread. Just do that bread trick again. I don't imagine, I mean, it was, Jesus made the bread. It may have been more tasty than bread, but they didn't even have King's Hawaiian rolls back then. How good could it have been? But just give us more of the bread. He said, no, I'm coming to offer you myself. Eternal life, the promise that you will never be cast out. Eternal blessing, I'm offering you myself. Peace with God, entrance into the kingdom, true and lasting pleasures. But because he didn't offer it in the way they wanted, because he didn't come in the package that they looked for, because he came to deal with their own hearts, because he refused to, to tell them, you know what, your problems are all out there. It is your circumstances. It is all the crummy things the world has done to you. You know, if those rotten Romans weren't around, everything would be perfect in your life. Instead, he looked deeper into their soul and he says, you know what, the problem is you. The problem is your heart. The problem is the evil that springs forth from within you. So you must fall down on your face and you must repent. Dear friends, you repent and you will find joys you could never imagine. True and lasting pleasure. But instead of that, they wanted him dead. 
He wasn't the king that they had longed for. It settled for so little that they demanded his death. Now, had Jesus actually been guilty of the crimes that the Sanhedrin were accusing him of, they would have never handed him over. Had he actually been seeking to lead a rebellion, they would not have handed him over. And yet, because he was innocent, because he had not done what they said he had done, they wanted him destroyed. So when Jesus looks to Pilate and he says, it is as you have said, you better know in the back of his mind he was saying, and buddy boy, it's more than you can ever understand. You say that I'm king of the Jews and you say correct. But sir, you must understand that you believe that you are the sovereign here. You believe that you are the right judge here. You must know, Pilate, that you are the one that is on trial. You must know that you are the one that is being judged. You must know that the one that stands before you now is the eternal judge of the universe. I am the king of kings. You must know that while in the back of your mind you believe that I've been delivered to you because my earthly kingdom has failed, you think I tried to lead some rebellion and somehow I took a misstep along the way and now my people have abandoned me? You must know that someday even you, Pilate, that you will see that the kingdoms of man have become the kingdoms of God. Pilate, you think that you're safe because I'm not coming after your earthly kingdom today? Buddy boy, the day will come. The day will come when all kingdoms will be the kingdom of God. When I reign in, not like a baby, not as a man to lay down his life, but when I come in to destroy all sinners, when I come to rid the earth of all evil, you think that you're safe? You think that you're secure? You think that your kingdom is fine? Pilate, what you should do right now is fall down on your knees and worship. What you should do is cry out to me for mercy. But for now... Pilate, it is as you say. You say that I am king of the Jews, and I am. I'm also king of the Romans and king of the universe. But for now, I submit myself into your hands. Verse 3, back in this morning's text. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate, was amazed. Dear friends, see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Dear friends, do you have any idea of the temptation Jesus must have felt even at this very moment? All of Jesus' life, all of Jesus' perfect and sinless and god worshiping, God-ordering, God-glorifying life was lived in the presence of absolute evil. Sinful and stupid and shallow and evil men, all the while he himself was being tried and tempted. At every moment, knowing temptation, the likes of which you and I can never imagine. And then you must know as the cross came near, you must know that Satan ramped up his attack. He did everything he could to turn Jesus away from his father's path, to turn Jesus away from that which he was destined to do. You must imagine that there in the garden, those were the whispers that he was saying in his ear. Would you really lay down your life for these people? Would you really lay down your life for these dishonorable and sinful people? These people that will abandon you. These people that will forsake you. These people that will curse your name. Are you really going to lay down your life for these kinds of sinners? Dear friends, I told you, that was the battle we watched. That was the whole ball game. What went down in the garden of Gethsemane? At that moment, as Jesus cried out, and he says, Father, I don't want to do this. That can make Christians very uncomfortable. The Son of God looking at the Father and saying, I don't want to do this. This isn't going to be fun. I don't want to be beaten and down on a cross, and I sure don't want to drink down your wrath. I don't want to be separated from you for even one second. I've never had a moment when I didn't see your blessed face. Father, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let's do that. And dear friends, you must know that in those lonely midnight hours that Satan and his demons, they brought the full force of darkness upon Jesus Christ. Every temptation Every doubt, every accusation came upon him in a temptation to lead him to abandon the path of the cross. And yet now he, here he stands. Here he stands before Pilate, the one that will nail him to the cross. He stands before this man, and he's exhausted. He hadn't slept all night. Jesus was human. He was exhausted. He was exhausted from not sleeping. He was exhausted from the emotions of a busy week. He was exhausted from spending time in a garden and heart-piercing cries as he cried out to God through great sweats of blood that came down his eyes. He was exhausted from the emotion of being abandoned by his closest followers. He was exhausted from the beatings that he had already endured. Jesus Christ was utterly exhausted. How do you act when you're tired? In our house, when daddy doesn't get a full night's sleep, it's not good. 
So you pile this exhaustion on top of all of this, and now he stands here for a fourth time on trial, listening to the lies of these men that should have been falling down before him in worship, listening to the lies of these men that should have, above everybody else, that should have recognized who the Christ was, that should have understood the prophecies, and yet instead he hears as these men accuse and curse and spit upon and beat him, and he would not even open his mouth only opening his mouth to utter that good confession. That's what Paul says to Timothy in his letter, that Jesus only opened his mouth to utter the good confession, but refusing to answer these baseless uh, charges, knowing that at any moment with just a word, he could have called down a legion of angels from heaven. He could have called down 12 legions of angels from heaven, and they could have not only done away with all these charges, but destroyed those that charged him, and the suffering would have ended. At any moment, the suffering could have stopped. At any moment, the pain could have been over. And yet, as Matthew tells us, Jesus gave Pilate no answer, not even to a single charge. Dear friends, we do well to remember that Mark wrote this letter to a suffering church in the middle of the first century. He wrote this letter to Christian men and women, many of which were suffering under the hands of an evil and wicked man called Nero. They were being pursued and beaten and accused, and many of them killed for sport. He was looking to a suffering church and he's holding before them Jesus Christ, their savior. He's putting Jesus on full display. He's saying to these Christian people that had to feel like giving up. You know the temptation had to have been there. Look, we can make this go away if we would just deny him. We can make make this go away if we would just abandon the way. We could all make this go away if we would just live the way that the rest of the world lives. And he's saying to them, keep going. Keep going. Look to Jesus Christ, your savior. Look at the way that he suffered. Look at the way that he was silent before his accusers and keep going going dear friends you must see that we need this too you must see the way that jesus hold that, that john mark holds the same jesus before us today dear friends i pray that you know this tension look the persecution is different nobody's threatening your physical life nobody's threatening physical violence to the best of my knowledge against any of you and yet the, the persecution is there and the suffering is there and the temptation is there dear friends i pray that you know this because if not you may have already lost the fight you may have already laid down and died But I pray that you know what it feels like to try to follow after Jesus Christ, to seek to honor and obey and worship God in the middle of a world that hates him. And I pray that you know what it's like when your flesh cries out and says to you, why do we always have to do things the hard way? Why do we always have to take the hard path? Why do we always have to be the bad guy? Look, I know God says... And I know it's to the glory of God, but dang, I'm tired. Why can't I just fight like the world for once? Why can't I just enjoy some of the good things this world has to offer for once? But I say to you this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ, there is no other way. This is the only way to eternal life. This is the only way to the kingdom of God. This is the only way to true satisfaction. Is this the hard path? Walking like this, putting your flesh to death, daily dying and denying yourself. There is no other option. This is the will of your Father. You want to know the will of God. How many men say, I wish I just knew the will of God for for my life? This is the will of God, that you walk this hard path, that you suffer with Christ, trusting in the promise that in the end you will see glory. Now, I know we're short on time, but these texts are so good. I've got to read these to you. This is where the hope comes. This is where the joy comes. Because we believe that most of what we get through John Mark, he got through the Apostle Peter. First-hand accounts from the Apostle Peter. And we, we look later in life as Peter is writing his letters to the church. And we read 1 Peter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you have sinned and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You have been called to this. To what? to suffer and be beaten for doing good, for enduring well in the middle of this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Christian, look to Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. He is your example, and he knows. He knows. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it is to be accused. He knows what it is to be on trial for something he had not done. He knows. 
He has suffered temptation the likes of which you and I could never imagine, and yet he never reviled. He never lied. He never threatened. He never cursed. He never took the easy way out. You look to Jesus Christ and you see the way he endured to the glory of his Father. But dear friends, you must do more than look with your eyes. The scripture says that Pilate was amazed. Pilate saw the way that Jesus endured. He saw the way that Jesus didn't open his mouth. He saw the way that Jesus suffered, and he was amazed. But amazement isn't enough. The crowds were amazed by Jesus Christ, and they went away lost. Pilate was amazed by Jesus Christ, and he put him to death. Many disciples were amazed by Jesus Christ, and they walked away as soon as things got hard. We don't just look to Jesus Christ. Yes, we see him. Yes, we're amazed. But if you hold him only as an example, you will always fail. You will live a miserable life, a constant battle of loss. You will never win. You will never win. You will never glorify God. You will never honor his name. You will never experience victory, and you will not find glory at the end of this life if you only look to Jesus Christ as an example. You must fall before him as the son of God and worship. You must bow before him in unquestioned submission as king. And dear friends, you must rest in his perfect work as the once and for all sacrifice and the great high priest. That's your only hope. You look to this Jesus Christ and then what do you do with the one that amazes you? You worship, you submit, and you rest in him. You quit working in your own power. You quit trying to follow his example in your own flesh. And what's more than this, when we come to him like this, you will find help. I won't read the text to you now, but you know the text. In Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, it talks about the fact that our great high priest, he's not unable to sympathize with us because he suffered just as we have. He suffered just as we have. He suffered in that moment knowing there's a way out and I'm not gonna take it. I'm gonna suffer to the glory of God. I'm gonna follow my father's path so that when we come against those very same battles, we can cry out to him and he knows. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. But what it says here is let us then Because he sympathizes, because he has endured, because he has suffered, because he took our sin to the cross, because he rose again in power, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is your help. He is your only help. You look to him in time of need and you cry out and you draw near to the throne through him. Through him, through the veil that is his flesh, through all that he has done, you draw near. You don't shout at God across a chasm. You don't look at him from a great distance. You don't wish that he would come near. You draw near with confidence that he will not turn you away. And dear friends, in that day, you will find help. Father God, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this word and for this promise. And Father, for the way you overcome our weakness. Father, our deepest desire, our ultimate prayer in this moment is that you would be honored and glorified. It's what we need most, the only place we'll find true satisfaction. So as we take this word into our heart, as we seek to believe it and live in light of it, and then as we seek to worship you now, we know that we don't change you. We know that you are not some way altered in your nature by our prayers and by our songs. Father, we know that it's we who need to be changed. So Father, we pray that we would be changed as a result of this encounter we have now. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.